Welcome to the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is Tiffany Agard, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief at The Review. This podcast will explore a variety of policy issues through interviews with figures from around the world. The next few episodes have been adapted from a live speaker series conducted during the 2020 to 2021 academic year. In this episode, you'll hear from our senior editor, Cosmas Amesium, as we sit down with Dr. Yang Yang Chen, postdoctoral fellow from Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center, to discuss the dynamic of U.S.-China scientific collaboration and explore policy implications considering the competing national interests of both countries. The policy review introduced this speaker series as a way of engaging in some of these important conversations about policy and public dialogue. And today we have um, Dr. Cheng as our speaker. Um, Dr. Cheng is a, a postdoctoral fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai Institute or Paul Tsai Center. Before joining Yale, she worked at the Large Hadron Collider LHC for over a decade and was a postdoctoral research associate at Cornell University and LHC Physics Center, distinguished researcher at FEMNA National Accelerator Laboratory, and born and raised in China. Dr. Cheng holds a PhD in physics from the University of Chicago 2015, and her bachelor's in science from the University of Science and Technology of China School of Gifted Young. She is a columnist with SubChina. Her essays has, have appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Los Angeles Review of Books, and Foreign Policy. She takes particular interest in atomic physics, and therefore she's also published severally in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist and other publications. It's been my singular honor knowing the scholarship of Dr. Cheng and inviting her to be the leader of our dialogue today. Dr. Cheng, you are welcome to Cornell Policy Review. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Cosmos, for the kind introduction. We were just chatting earlier that this is almost five years to the date that uh, I met, met Cosmos for, for the first time. So <laughs> before I joined uh, Yale Law School this year, I was a postdoctoral uh, scholar at, at Cornell in the physics department for, for five years. And, and so um, this was not the first time that I uh, was an imposter at the law school. And, and I, I guess we are still um, having people join um, intermittently. And I made a few slides. And so I will share my screen. Can you guys see my screen? Yes. All right. So, um, the topic that Cosmos gave me is pushing the frontier, and which is a really broad topic to talk about science and transnational governance. And um, I put on the title slide this map of the world. And so I was born and raised in China. And when I was growing up, this is the map that I'm familiar with in terms of um, <laughs> uh, the orientation. And when I moved to the US, I realized world maps are printed with a completely different orientation. And, and this is an, another reminder of how countries always like to put themselves at the center in terms of how they look at the rest of the world. And um, I would like to begin by reading from a quote from a press statement. 
quote, the real victims in this case are you, the taxpayers. The cutting edge research and technologies that are being developed here in Massachusetts must be carefully protected from our foreign adversaries and the FBI will continue to do everything it can to safeguard these important innovations. To put this threat into perspective, we have now reached the point where the FBI is opening a new China-related counterintelligence case about every 10 hours. And of the 5,000 active counterintelligence cases the FBI has, nearly half of them are related to China. Each and every one of our field offices is So in the Boston division, uh, Joseph Bosolo Lonta. And uh, this was uh, given on January 14th of this year, so just a couple of months ago, um, uh, when the FBI uh, announced, uh, well, the, the Justice D Department announced the arrest of the uh, FBI professor Gang Chen, which some of you might have already read in the news. Um, on, on charges of wire fraud and filing uh, false tax returns, etc. And I'm not here to go into details of the case, but to put this into perspective, uh, on Jan uh, in November of 2018, the Justice Department launched the China Initiative with the explicit uh, purpose to combat Chinese economic espionage, quote unquote. And I, I should mention that this, though it started under the Trump administration, the issue of um, alleged or oh, real Chinese economic espionage and its impact on academia as well as industry had predated the Trump administration and will persist after the Trump administration as we are seeing now. And uh, for the past couple of years, there were uh, schools of indictments and convictions, and these are very serious federal charges uh, ranging from trade secret theft to filing a false tax return. And one thing that the China Initiative, uh, for example, it has said in its year in review last, last year is that it has identified academia as one of its focuses, as it's one of most vulnerable areas because of its tradition of openness and the importance of international exchanges to the free flow of ideas, leaving it vulnerable to uh, the People's Republic of China's exploitation. And so um, I want, I want to put this um, into a broader context instead of litigating very specific cases, whether it's uh, actual trade secret theft or whether it was just uh, sloppy paperwork, but, but to think about the broader relationship between science and the state. Because for something to be stolen, it needs to be owned first. And so we've seen uh, now there is this sense of hyper, um, whether it's paranoia or sensitivity, tension, fear in academia, especially for scientists of Chinese origin or with, uh, with collaborations in China. Some of them, I put an image of the uh, airport boarding gate because there are a lot of anecdotal evidence of Chinese students and scientists when they are boarding an international flight at the border where traditional civil rights do not apply when they apply in US territory and being stopped by DHS agents and being questioned and having their electronics confiscated, et cetera. And, and there are also civil rights groups and science organizations saying that this is a case of, uh, this is racial profiling and urging the uh, new Biden administration to stop the China initiative. And all of these are, are complicated issues, but 
this is, I think, a great way to talk about sci uh, science in this relationship with the state in terms of the border as well as the frontier. So let's start with history. If we look at um, the image on, on the top left, this is the Dengfeng at, uh, Observatory in, in central north China, and it dates back to some, somewhat 3,000 years, and it has been used to observe, uh, observe the sky and, and record astro, um, astronomical phenomena. And in the, in the Tang Dynasty, there were Buddhist monks uh, from India who worked in, in the town capital and doing astronomical observations. And after the Mongol con conquest, the Dengfeng Observatory also hosted Islamic instruments. On the other hand, these astronomical observations were not just done for curiosity. They were done for, for, uh, for the state. The, uh, the astronomers, the pre-modern Chinese astronomers were employed by the imperial court where the observations, the recordings of astrophysical uh, phenomena helped to legitimize imperial charisma. On the other hand, the issuance of calendars that marked the beginning of a new empire or the coronation of a new emperor also helped the state regulate agriculture to make the historically for millennia science has worked benefited from state support as well as from foreign transmissions science has been transnational since pre-modern times and on the other hand it has also served state interests and after World War II, um, across the world, science has become primarily state-funded. And many scientific endeavors in the, the post-World War II era have, especially in the West, have espoused this idea of cosmo uh, these cosmopolitan ideals. For example, CERN, the European Center for Nuclear Research, which I've spent over a decade on, uh, was built after World War II with both a scientific mission, but also an explicit like peacekeeping mission. How do we, it was literally built on the border of the French Swiss border in a sense of how we can use a fundamental scientific endeavor to bring previously uh, antagonistic warring nations over centuries together. And so many scientists, including myself and many of my colleagues, indeed believed in and are inspired by these cosmopolitan ideals. But the reality is much more complicated even for an explicitly international organization like CERN, which we can talk about later. And so I think here comes a kind of tension where we of knowledge, advancing handing of nature. That is what we, uh, this conventional thinking about science, that it has no, it recognizes no borders, its role is to break down borders. But on the other hand, science as a primarily government funded political human, uh, human endeavor is inherently political. And so what we've seen is from pre-modern science to modern science also reflected and reinforced these existing boundaries and barriers in society, whether they are tangible barriers in terms of actual national borders. And here I mean not just a border wall, but also forms of surveillance, monitoring, and state control, but also intangible borders in terms of racism and, and gender discrimination and other forms of 
sorting people into different categories and enforcing these social constructs. And so we, in a way, scientific exploration has also, it has ex extended new territories, but it has also extended these, ex these new territories. And I think one mark of this is when human beings went to the moon and the first thing they did was to plant a national flag. And so here, now we come back to the China initiative. And for example, US attorney Andrew Le Uh, the change in administration. These cases, when they were prosecuted, were very technical cases about fi filing a false tax return or, or, or stealing trade secrets or, or whatever. But there is a political motivation behind it, behind these technical details. Like you said, this is not just about greed, but about loyalty to China. And so what, what is the role of national allegiance in terms of scientific collaborations? Here, I would like to um, use a concept developed, um, proposed by full-time university law professor Yang J. Li in his 2012 paper, Punishing Disloyalty. When he talked about punishing disloyalty, we should not think about it, we should not think about national allegiance in terms of personal morality, because that is complicated and state actions, of course, are not always, and, and often not morally justified. But we should think about crimes of disloyalty as transgressions of boundaries between the citizen and the state. For example, if a US citizen uh, gave US military secrets to a foreign government, it is transgression, uh, transgression of this political boundary in terms of violating the state's monopoly on legitimate violence. Of course, we can, we can talk about later what, what is legitimate violence and whether the state monopoly on violence is legitimate. Um, but if we apply this concept to science, if we think about a state trying to talk about academic collaborations in fields of science in terms of national allegiance, then there are two kinds of boundaries. On one hand, on the US side, it's the US government seeking to take ownership of pieces of knowledge and claiming, claiming it as its own. And for, as I mentioned earlier, for knowledge to be stolen, it has to be owned first. But on the other hand, it also shows a perception of Chinese scientists in this relationship with the Chinese government that the boundary is blurred. And so individual actions, whether it's the, 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 a Chinese scientist or a, a, a scientist, an American scientist with Chinese uh, affiliations are all somehow seen as acting or potential agents of the Chinese state. And of course, the relationship between the citizen and the state is complicated, and especially in a country like China with its authoritarian state system and its land and state structure. And so here I'd like to talk a bit about the Chinese, uh, the Chinese government's talent recruitment programs and its, and its compl um, complicated relationship with inter intellectual property. And so when um, after World War II, the country was devastated, and as we can see here from, uh, from the table, this is a, a tabulation of the total number of people with physics PhDs in the entire country of, of the, in the entire country of China, of course, it's um, covered both the, the Republic and the People's Republic era in the first half of the 20th. And the total number is 162. And so, so the country was uh, really 
needed well-trained talent to build its science and education sectors after the war. And what it did, what it benefited from was uh, foreign transmissions or in terms of overseas Chinese talent returning to their ancestral homeland to help the country rebuild. So up until 1956, about 40% um, of 2000 out of 5000 overseas Chinese scientists. And, and these were the people who are like the founders founders of modern science in, in the People's Republic. And of course, afterwards, there were decades of political fanaticism under Mao and, and the country was, uh, was embroiled in political turmoil and also extremely isolated from the rest of the world. And after the death of Mao and through the 1980s, the country gradually opened up and it was allowing Chinese students and scientists to go abroad to study again. And and since then, the Chinese, science, the Chinese government's perception was it was hoping that the students, after they graduate, they would come back to China and, 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 and work in research or teach. But you have to contend with human nature that most people overseas. And when the country has developed to a certain degree. And the Chinese government in, in 2008 launched its flagship overseas talent recruitment program called Thousand Talent. And remember this when I was a college uh, ju a junior going on to my senior year in China and uh, hearing about this fancy new program. And, and it was the, the idea was, uh, was to have lucrative um, financial packages that included both robust funding as well as uh, generous personal compensation to attract overseas talent um, to China. And it's not exclusive to people of Chinese origin, but it does uh, overwhelmingly target the Chinese diaspora. And the Chinese government also often um, exploits or appeals to sentiments of national belonging. For example, on the Thousand Talents Plans homepage, it has uh, on top in Chinese, on the banner is the motherland needs you, the motherland welcomes you, the motherland places her hope in you. And so, However, to uproot one's life from one country to another can never be reduced to like a paycheck or a patriotic slogan. So it's a complex, complicated situation and people are, are flawed. And so there are situations with, with just personal greed or vanity or, or misunderstanding. And, and so which has given rise to the situation uh, phenomena called double dipping, which is a, a scientist would have kept their or they were um, taking options and, and not necessarily fulfilling the time requirement as, as the positions uh, required. Uh, this is primary, this is academic misconduct, but, and the primary cost is borne on the Chinese side since they, the government was paying all this money and, and the scientists have not really worked in the country. However, it's being perceived and increasingly criminalized in, in the US as a conduit for intellectual property theft. And, and I think this is, um, this is an interesting situation where the Chinese uh, institutions and the government are not 
unaware of the of of the laws, but they have conflicting interests. As especially for for less prestigious universities, they may be willing to pay such money to just have the association with a prestigious name, just for for the fame and the prestige. And so I think this kind of conflicting interests is also um, analogous to the uh, the China's conflicted history record in terms of intellectual property. When, when the uh, when the U.S. Uh, when the U.S. government and and other countries, Western countries, often accuse China as this kind of rogue nation that's willing to cheat and steal its way to the top, it's not false. It, it's it, it, there is a lot of truth to that image, uh, but that character also misses other witting uh, actors and also. to orientalist stereotypes saying this is like Chinese culture leading to Chinese people not obeying rules or not obeying intellectual property laws. However, if we look at US history, when, when the United States was newly independent, uh, it also uh, embarked on very aggressive talent recruitment and technological procurement uh, plans from, from Europe and, and often in violation of British immigration and export control laws. I know that our uh, $10 founding father without the father Alexander Hamilton in his uh, 19, uh, 1792 uh, report on manufacturers to, to Congress, which was later the plan was adopted by Congress. And if we read the language, there's a lot of things about how using tariffs and other subsidies to protect uh, domestic industries and, and in terms of foreign uh, talent and technology recruitment. And, and the language has a lot of resonance with, with Beijing's uh, plans nowadays in terms of so-called indigenous innovation. And so this is, I would say that this is not so much a, China's dotted history record in terms of uh, intellectual property violations or lack of protections is is not so much a matter of Chinese culture, but some um, related to its on one hand political system, on the other hand, its stage of economic development. And what we are seeing now, very recently, uh, Xi Jinping has given a statement saying that. emphasis on protection has evolved from, quote, a major importer of intellectual property to a major ex uh, to a major creator of intellectual property. So in a lot of ways, uh, the present is history. And it, when we are talking about history, in terms of US, um, the US government and academia's Conf a conflicted attitude toward scientific collaboration in relationship with national property uh, in the relationship with national security. This is not new. For example, back in 1972, um, Fermilab. So I, I live in Chicago, and this is just outside of um, outside of the city. Uh, this is the National Accelerator Lab that uh, that was founded in 1967, and and it had Soviet scientists 
coming to work on Fermilab's first experiment and the first group of Soviet scientists arrived in 1972. And this followed a tradition of international collaborations at the time when the, when, when the Iron Curtain was almost impenetrable. Um, uh, for example, at CERN, the European Center for Nuclear Research, uh, uh, Soviet scientists and, and Western scientists were collaborating um, as early as 1963 at CERN. And, and of course, uh, we have these anecdotal jokes about because back then the Soviet scientists, when they arrived in the US, is as a condition of the Soviet Union, they need to arrive with their government minders or whatever. But some clever fits in the um, published papers database and realized some, pe some people in the delegation have never published the physics paper. And so they were probably not physicists. And, and, and so these, a lot of these US scientists who advocated and, and, and pressured the US government to open up these kinds of peaceful uh, collaborations in basic research were, were veterans of the Manhattan Project, and they are not naive about national security, but they also understood uh, how collaborations in fundamental research are actually instrumental and, uh, and benefits peace and, and stability as well, in addition to advancement in science. And in um, a decade later, in 1982, the Reagan administration, concerned about Soviet acquisition of advanced technologies, convened a study um, by the Department of Defense as well as the National Science Foundation. And the result was issued four years later as National Security Directive Decision, NSDD 189, which uh, remains in effect today. And it says that to the maximum extent possible, the products of fundamental research should remain unrestricted. And when national security uh, demands control, the method is classification. And when we, are, when we look at the cases in, uh, in the China Initiative, for example, and, and from the Department of Justice's uh, own statements, the primary target of, uh, of the China Initiative is not um, violation of But it's primarily English. So these are trade secrets, not weapons. And, and we'll talk more about uh, technology for, for weapons research later. But, but in terms of these, these are commercial technology that are uh, somehow being stolen uh, and how academia is being used as a conduit for that. And that also is a relatively new thing. Not, not, not in terms of Chinese or other governments stealing it, but in terms of how knowledge is considered, it becomes proprietary at universities. And this also, be, uh, this also traces its intellectual, uh, ideological and legal underpinnings to the 1980s in this wave of privatization and commercialization when, uh, when, the, when the public good gives way to private interests. So in 1980, the Baidu Act um, was, uh, was became law, which allowed universities to patent their products from federally funded research and license them pro for profit. Before that, as I mentioned, after World War II for, for decades, and, and to now, like um, scientific research at universities is primarily government funded. Um, but before the Baidu Act, the products from government funded research usually go into the public domain. Um, but, but this changed with, with this, with this uh, major piece of legislation in terms of patent and intellectual property regime in the US. And
There are also other pieces of laws that, that in the following years, uh, for example, 1995, the TRIPS agreement, which is this trade-related intellectual property rights, which is part of like as international governance as, as a rule of, of WTO that, that requires every WTO member country to adopt uh, minimum substantive standards for IP protection. And then the following year, President Bill Clinton signed into law the Economic Espionage Act. And this was for the first time to make trade secret theft a federal crime because before traditionally it was trade secret theft was considered a civil dispute that companies can, can sue each other in civil court for, for financial damages. But in re, like, it's a still a relatively recent thing in the past few decades, couple of decades that intellectual property infringement is increasingly criminalized. And, and this is not just domestically, but also internationally. And the US government has also like, for example, threat, uh, used trade, Threat, threats of trade sanctions against developing nations, including South Africa, Thailand, and, and Brazil, uh, for them to, to obey certain intellectual property agreements. And as mentioned earlier, a lot of these IP regimes, they are the lax, uh, the, the lax regulations and the frequent violations are not something inherent to a country's culture or, or the people, but because, because of its stage of economic development. And so this kind of uh, property protection around the world um, has also exacerbated, in particular, hindered, um, endangered global health in terms of um, uh, hindering access to essential medicines. And so this is, an, th this I, I should say here that, um, as I mentioned, there are civil rights groups and, uh, and sci science uh, associations accusing the China Initiative as racial profiling. And the Justice Department statement is that this is not racial profiling because the Chinese government is primarily targeting and recruiting Chinese uh, scientists of Chinese ethnicity. And so our main uh, investigative focus are also scientists of Chinese ethnicity. And, and there is some truth to that, but I would like to take a step back and say that there is a, a, a racist underpinning to the entire intellectual property regime globally because on what because it protects corporate interests which are primarily owned and managed by white people and it advances US interests and disproportionately burdens developing world where the pop population are majority non-white. So this in a way I would say is also a manifestation of racial capitalism. And science is not immune to that. And in a way, the scientific community is also complicit in it. And so we come back to the um, last section of, of, of this talk, coming back to the idea of the frontier and the border. And so um, again, the, the was joining because during the war, of course, the United States um, pushed a lot of uh, scientific developments, but they were they were organized in, in war times and they were military secrets um, predominantly. And so President Roosevelt sent his science advisor, Vannevar Bush, four questions in terms of how do we advance science and education in times of peace. And, and so Bush uh, responded uh, the, fo the following summer, and, and this was when he's, uh, and this report is uh, titled Science, the Endless Frontier. 
and, and is credited with the founding of the national science, the establishment of the National Science Foundation uh, uh, five years later in 1950. And so Bush uh, stressed the importance of um, basic research and advocated for strong federal support. And, and of course he used the kind of language about the pioneer spirit is vigorous in this nation and talking about how, how the frontier the, the idea of the frontier in terms of um, scientific research and, and collaboration where um, unknown aspects of knowledge are, are like the, the unexplored hinterlands. And, and so I think, I think this is a very, and they talk about how basic research is happening in the purest realms of science and these were, were uh, Bush's words. And so there is a, a certain notion and, and I believe that, that Bush believed in, in these things. I, I, I'm not And, and ironic timing that two weeks after Bush's report to Congress, um, the, the United the US uh, military dropped bombs in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, and after the war, of course, uh, the, the United States had pushed um, this idea of an of open science as free from political interference. And this was an, an alluring and a powerful rhetoric uh, during the Cold War in contrast with the Soviet science or communist science this kind of science that has been state controlled and, 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 and pushed with a very explicit political agenda. And, and, that's, and so we come back to the beginning when we talk, when we talk about this, this cosmopolitan idea of science, this kind of rhetoric is indeed very appealing. And many scientists themselves have believed in it and have used that to push for international collaborations in science, um, breaking down geopolitical barriers as we've seen earlier of Soviet scientists collaboration with European, Western European and, and US scientists uh, in, uh, during the height of the Cold War in particle physics and accelerator physics. However, um, this, a lot of this is also a myth. It's, 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 it's facilitated and, and shaped by government, by, by US government propaganda in, in its ideological battle against the Soviet Union. And, and, the, United, and the United States, of course, uh, it was saying that it's it's science is it's science is not so called pure or apolitical. It it has used uh, scientific developments, especially during the, the period of the Cold War, to facilitate its military-industrial complex, and then and nowadays also for for the prison-industrial complex to facilitate capitalist exploitation, uh, both domestically and around the world. And so so these are are the aspects that. Are, are obscured by these um, cosmopolitan ideals of science, but it is very reality. And, and there is a great book about this Freedom's Laboratory by the science historian um, Audra Wolf about, about this idea of an apolitical free, free science uh, and as opposed to communist science during the Cold War. And on my final slide, I borrowed the title from this this great book by the historian Greg Grandin called The End of the Myth. And the subtitle is, um, 
from the frontier to the border wall in the minds of America. And so this was, was he was talking about how the frontier has, has a strong hold on the American imagination. And as this dark side of it, that if the frontier then it absolves the empire in its uh, in its in its conquest. On the other hand, this kind of endless growth and expansion also distracts from internal problems. But there is a sense was like the resources on this planet is is limited, and there is a point where where the myth ends, and and this in a way is reflected in, in Greg Grandin's book uh, uh, as he manifested as the border wall, saying that our country is full and we cannot allow any, any other people, uh, uh, undesired people in. And of course that is also related to, to capitalist exploitations. But, uh, but, but if we apply that concept to science as well, right? On one hand, there was this idea of, an end, uh, of this open, open science of extending into new territories. But on the other hand, there is also this deep anxiety about uh, science's relationship with, with the state, but as well as the sense of what is the United States position in the world and, it's, and what role does science play in terms of national interests and national strength and national security. And so um, on January 15th uh, this year, to uh, FDR's questions to Vannevar Bush um, three quarters of a century ago. And, and it was really, really interesting uh, of uh, Biden's questions when I read them now, uh, where the question started with global issues, the pandemic and climate change. But the third question takes a very sharp nationalistic turn saying that how do we, uh, how can United ensure that it is the world leader in the technologies and industries of the future that will be critical to our national prosperity especially and economic prosperity and national security, especially in competition with China. And, and I found it to be a really interesting uh, concept to, to, think, uh, to think about scientific development in, in this nationalistic sense, right? For a, for a national competition to be, uh, to be valid, you have to draw an artificial boundary, not just in terms of territory, but in terms of knowledge. And how is that boundary drawn? And is that boundary valid? And is that boundary um, beneficial or, or harmful? And, and we can see that it's actually contrary to his to the goals um, he stated in the first two questions, because the pandemic, the coronavirus doesn't recognize national borders and effects from climate change don't, don't domestic laws as well as uh, international trade agreements and, 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 and other tools in its legal and economic arsenal has indeed hindered the developing world from accessing vital medicines as well as from accessing green technologies. And these have endangered global, global public health as well as uh, hindered the, uh, the, uh, the world's ability to address climate change, which is a global problem. And so, so, so <laughs> on the other hand, when, when, when a country like the United States is trying to impose these these borders, these boundaries. One thing that has not recognized borders is capital, 
right? When human beings are being confined behind borders to uh, to provide cheap labor and other forms of exploitation, uh, capital has largely freed uh, flowed freely. Uh, to be able to to uh, to achieve the, the maximization of profit, and so so there is an inherent contradiction or uh, uh, or hypocrisy there. Or if you say that it's not really hypocritical because uh, because there is only one uh, one principle, which is the accumulation of profit. And so I think this is a point where where we need a, a radical rethinking of of not. Um, of science's relationship with the state and in terms of our understanding of the public, that the public cannot just be a national public, but the public must be must be global. And scientists themselves, and this is where I come back to, uh, to, to earlier when I mentioned, uh, when we talk about trade secret theft and how the United States um, really is a relatively recent thing that has increasingly criminalized intellectual property infringement and, and linked that uh, linked economic prosperity with aspects of national security. And in a public consciousness, a lot of these issues have become blurred, whether uh, when it when 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 the China initiative is using really serious charges for like wire fraud, which is popularly perceived as like people like mob bosses or organized crime or charged with wire fraud, but then a scientist who uh, missed uh, a, a, a certain disclosure uh, agreement in, in his federal grant proposal is also charged with wire fraud. And, and all of these um, uneven on, on treatment of, the, uh, of these cases have blurred these issues when we don't understand whether um, the, the actual misconduct is academic misconduct, a violation of academic integrity that can be adjudicated through, through eth uh, eth academic ethics and regulations in, in the academy, or if it is um, a commercial dispute in terms of intellectual property theft, or if it's actually issues of national security in terms of of actually sensitive technology that have military use or dual use. And on the, on the last element, I would like to say that I think this is a, a really critical issue that how these narratives of national competition between the US and China or, or democratic systems and authoritarian systems have really obscured, uh, obscured these really urgent matters of research ethics that bombs are, are, are bad, not, not because like, Bombs kill, and and they don't become any less lethal because the government is is democratically elected, or if the government government is authoritarian. And a lot of times, these um, narratives of um, of a democracy or freedom have been appropriated to be used as a shield for nationalism, and and. And, and a lot of these questions of of, um, of ethical development and application of new technologies have given way to, on one hand, this incessant need for capitalist growth, and on the other hand, this parochial notion of national interests. And, and the Chinese government's abuse of new technologies, which we can discuss in Q&A, um, are being waived as a political bargaining chip for partisan interests and have in a way also weakened the, the US government or, or the international community's uh, ability to really address these issues as transnational issues instead of just as, um, as some way to, to advance a, a diplomatic uh, goal or a national uh, or a very narrow national interest. So I would like come to come back to we, we started with a, a, a federal investigation and an indictment, and I'll we'll come back to the issue of of innocence or, or complicity. Uh, 
And, and this is not in a legal sense, but, but in a moral sense, that because science is inherently political and scientists cannot assume to be neutral explorers of nature or obedient followers of the state, but must reckon with their roles in facilitating state violence and feeding corporate greed and join the path of moral pathfinding. Like John Berger said, a singer may be innocent, never the song. Thank you very much. I want to thank all our audience, all those who came to join us from far and near. I also want to thank in a special way Dr. Cheng for making our time to do this for us. I do know that life itself can be like- a It's been a pleasure. Life itself, science and learning can be a poetic encounter. And we are all made of symbols and ideas. And it is ideas that govern so and shape civilizations. And that's why we engage in some of these dialogues to be able to co collect ideas that could help us shape the new frontier of internationalization, the new frontier of scientific engagement. And I want to thank you from the deepest recess of my heart for participating in this conversation and helping us make it a wonderful day. Thank you. And please join us next time when you see our advertisement. <laughs> Thank you so much, and do have a wonderful time. Oh, thank you so much, and, and take care and stay safe, and, and hope that we can meet in person again soon. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. Bye-bye now. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And if you would like to receive notifications for future podcasts and articles, please subscribe to our mailing list at cornellpolicyreview.com.